Hello, hello. Welcome to The Bong Effect. This is Preeti Tana. And this is Dee Dee Perry. Good morning, Preeti. Good morning, Dee. How's it going? It's going. This week went by very, very quickly. You know what? It actually felt like I had two different weeks in one week, if that makes sense. It does. I, well, I mean, it's the middle of December. Right? When you say this week went by quickly, I think the entire year has gone by rather quickly. And has it though? Well, or I has mean, it just been monotonous? Well, it's that term we always say, you know, the days are long, but the weeks are short, something, something <clears throat> along those lines. But it's December. It's the middle of December. And I think it has. I mean, I, I can't believe it's December. I feel yeah. as though it just flew by. And I feel as though it's almost impossible not to reflect upon, you know, not only your personal sort of journey in 2020, but just the journey of, of the, the world, right? Because it's been, I mean, arguably rather tumultuous this past year. Absolutely. Absolutely. So much going on. Um, you know, in order to reflect upon your journey, you have to think about what's happening in the world. The pandemic, the yeah. leader of this country, the, the changeover, thankfully. Did I say that out loud? I did. Absolutely. Yes, you did. Do not apologize. I am. I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, but you know, there's been so there's been so much this year, right? There's um, we talked about the pandemic, new leadership. There's so much conversation around Black lives, Brown lives, people of color. There's momentum. There's changes in the way we're thinking and moving about having conversations with people. I mean, even even you see you you've read we've all read in the in news publications about so many people that are making a difference, you know, and and sort of bringing awareness. Everyday people like um, Amy Amy O'Sullivan, she was that the ER nurse, the first the ER nurse in Brooklyn. Oh, who treated the first? I know who treated the first COVID patient. you know, I don't know how many tennis fans we have out there, but um, Naomi Osaka during her journey, bringing awareness, right? Seven names through seven match- matches to honor the preciousness of black and brown lives. There's so many people that are in, you know, bringing attention, all of these different movements that we we need to sort of think about. And all of these actions are making us think differently. Would you agree? Yes, I would. Very well stated. Yeah. So, you know, these, these individuals to me or any individual, I mean, it could be folks like we just mentioned, your super, we talk about, can't wait to have him on, you know, our parents, our kids, whatever it is that make us move differently in this world, right? They're, they're change agents, if you will, or, or, you know, they bring a new consciousness. Do you think you are a change agent, Dee? Not like those famous people. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's famous, right? I mean, that's the point. The point is just a little bit of awareness, a little bit of, of, of discussion to have someone think differently about the way they're moving through life. Well, from that perspective, I certainly, I, I hope so. And because to me, the, the, the phrase does connote a certain level of, of uh, public awareness about the work that you are doing. And I don't have that. Um, well, perhaps, hey, we made a podcast. Does that make us change agents? Because it changed the fact that there used to not be a Bali Effect podcast, and now there is. So, boom, there you go. Yes, check. <laughs> um, more to the point of, of what you were speaking about, uh, trying to, to bring awareness to these ills uh, in mm-hmm. our society or just, just situations that need to be changed, fixed, or even restored just back to a place of decency or, or if there ever was in the beginning. I don't know. I certainly have done work uh, that has seek to hold people accountable, mm-hmm. especially people in power. Yeah. And I feel that a lot of us might at times feel that well, I don't know where to begin. I see all these things going on, but I don't know where I can have influence or how I can do anything. And it's like uh, we were we were told with the conversation um, last week or two weeks ago when Mother Teresa told our guests, just you can be influential. You can serve the immediate people around you. And so in this year, I've just gotten involved 
with small, you know, groups of folks in my immediate arms length. I mean, you know, trying to get involved with institutions where I went to school, trying to get involved with places where I shop and, and buy my, my mm-hmm. groceries and things like that. You, you see something, you can say something. If it's close yeah. enough to you, probably just speaking up and saying something, this isn't right. This isn't right for these reasons. These are the reasons why I think you can do better. And what I found is that if you share that perspective with other people, there are a lot of people right now whose consciousness are already elevated and they will join you mm-hmm. to communicate the message of what can be changed. And that can be effective. So we are seeing real tangible outcomes that it's not so much about me feeling proud of. I just am grateful that they are happening. But Preeti. Well, I, listen, I, I think I have to put it back to you. <laughs> back <laughs> I was too. trying to avoid this. I think you're a change agent for all the reasons that you mentioned and for many more, you know, in the work you do on a daily basis. I think I think sometimes we we it's a grandiose statement. Oh, she's a change agent. He's a change agent. And a lot of times that's used in corporations. But the ability to make someone think differently momentarily or long term, I think, is impactful. And I think that is part of that definition, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, you are changing day. Just wanted to let you know. Well, thank you. you all what, right about, what about you? I already know the answer, but why are you a change agent? I think one of the greatest um, experiences I've had in life, and it comes in many different forms, whether that is, as you mentioned, you know, Amita saying, you know, serve those immediately around you, or it's on a more uh, global, I wouldn't say global, larger scale, whether it's through, you know, work in organizations is really seeing that momentary, that one moment where someone, you know, says, oh, you know, that I see that. And not from a perspective of I'm right and, and they are not, but just a move, a slight little shift, you know, 1%, I like to call it, you know, 1% shift in in thinking about something differently for the greater good, right? Actually moving out of your own self to, you know, community and greater good. I think that's one of my life's greatest joys. And does it happen often? You know, no, I don't know. I think this year has been interesting. Certainly the podcast has helped with that. But I think if it's in the forefront of your mind to think about your community, to think about how you show up, to think about your interaction with your family, your friends, with those that you work with, that those that you come into contact with. I think that is, that is what we all strive for a little bit, you know, to take ourselves out of our own experience into, into the experience of someone else. So I just, I find, I find it, you know, there's so much joy regardless of the outcome, right? Sometimes, sometimes these things are temporary, but um, yeah, that's why. And much like our guest today, who is, I mean, this incredible, incredible person. I'm so excited to to introduce her to everyone today. Welcome, Mitra Kalita, to the Bali Effect. Hi, guys. Mitra is a veteran journalist, media executive, prolific commentator. She's the author of two books. She's worked in in many, many fine newsrooms, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, CNN most recently. Um, You're a board member and visiting faculty at the Pointer Institute. Um, I mean, I could go on and on of all of your accomplishments. You're a mother, a daughter, a wife, and really a phenomenal change agent. And we're so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. Welcome. You know, Mitra, I remember the first time... I met you and uh, we were out somewhere <clears throat> and we weren't out together. We were out with other people and, you know, we sort of connected through those people. And this was my first impression of you when we met. The first impression I had was aside from what a beautiful woman is, you are, this was the first thing I was like, this, this chick is a woman with a mission. You know, I don't think you you hadn't said anything to me. You came over, you introduced yourself, and that was what I thought. You have intention. Do you agree with that assessment? Gosh, you know, I uh, I remember the moment I met you too, and I remember thinking, 
I know who you were with. And I was like, thank God he's with a woman who looks like her. So there's intention, but there's also selfishness, which for me means how can I find more people who look like us and insert them into my space? So while it might come off as mission driven, you can't underestimate the like the desire for me to get some preeti in my life without even knowing you, right? Because that was, you know, in a in a corporate environment, even though we were we were at a, I, it was at a bar, um, and I, I do remember where it was. But but uh, so so yes, there was intention, but it's fueled by um, surrounding yourself with the right people, which not even knowing you, how would you surround yourself with the right people unless you open yourself up? to the possibility, right? And so mm-hmm. I remember distinctly feeling like, oh my gosh, this woman is in our universe. And of course, you could have taken that completely the wrong way of like, who is this aggressive woman coming over to introduce herself? But it, it, it was thankfully you did not. No, I I think I think you know, growing up uh Indian, right? We're we're both daughters of immigrants and and a lot of times that space of connecting with someone that looked like us or, you know, presented themselves wasn't so accepting, right? At least in my experience. And so, um, you know, I maybe at this point in life it is always so wonderful to be like, "Oh my god, check it out." You know, we're we're both trying to do different things here. I uh, but I and you know what the second thing I thought was how can I hang out with this girl more often? May I interject and <laughs> yes. just say, I think that anybody who's at a bar where Preeti is in the room wants more Preeti in their life. I, ju- I can do this. I can oh, do this. Go ahead. <laughs> so, but you know, listen, Mitra, um, aside from, from that connection, I do think that you have intention in the way that you pursue life. And did you always have that intention from when you were growing up, you know, I, I think many of us feel, I don't know, I'll speak about many of us. I think it took me a little bit of time to sort of come to who I was and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to present myself. But did you always have that sort of grounding? So I don't think I always had the grounding, but an interesting thing happened in my life, which is my parents moved around a lot. And so I would find myself very uncomfortable right like i can't even tell you the number of times i've been alone in the lunchroom and just wanted to be like swallowed up because who wants to be sitting alone when they're a kid right um and yet who wants to be the one to go up to a table and so i i and say hi i'm mitra you know like do you want to be my friend and so it it became a survival tactic out of moving around so much and so i think um that forced the intention. And then I think there's another piece of it, which is that my parents are real kind of pillars of their community. And so we just had strangers in and out of our house while I was growing up, whether it was like a visiting musician or someone undergoing cancer treatment or someone who had my dad's name on a slip of paper and was told that he would help and ended up staying on our couch. Like, so I was also surrounded by odd situations that I think just almost forced you to approach situations with intention mm-hmm. um, and, a, and a bit of clarity on, well, this is who I am. A- and then from there kind of, you know, relationship unfolds. Were you, so your parents grew up in India. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And they came to the US and it sounds like they assimilated quite well. You know, when you talk about yeah. all these visiting folks, what was it like for them coming here and for you seeing, you know, them, you know, flourish or or assimilate to to the US? So my family's from Assam, which is a region that a lot of Indians themselves don't know a lot about. It's it's um very geographically remote from India. And that matters just because um, literally the the connection to everything that we determine as quote unquote Indian, whether that's Bollywood music or chicken tikka masala or even yoga or, you know, holidays like Diwali and so forth. Those were not uh, my version of being Indian. Uh, because we're from such a remote region. So in some ways, I think my parents' assimilation into the U.S. was oddly 
I want to say easier because I don't want to diminish or uh, claim to know their experience, but I think it wasn't um, as presumptive on the part of either party because the part of India they were from, like Indians didn't even know it, right? And mm-hmm. so you don't get to invent um, your version of life in America. And for my father who left, um, my father was the first in his family to go to college, you know, a very typical rural Indian family. Um, And my grandfather sent him away to boarding school. And then he went to um, Benares Hindu University, which is a very competitive school in India. And by the time he got a job, he was a, a, he worked in the uranium mines um, and it was very far from home. And so when he saw that visas in the U.S. were plentiful, there was just this thinking of I'm already so far from home it would take me three days, four days to get home. Because again, my grandparents are not just, you can't fly there. You would have to fly, take a bus, and then a boat to where we're from. And so the idea of going to the US, which like is a plane ride, yes, but like a day's journey, he was like, okay, that's just an extension of of this journey that I've already taken that's so far from my home, right? Literally, metaphorically, and geographically. And so he came in 1971 and then my mom followed two years later. And by then she had my little brother, my elder brother rather. Um, So I think that because there weren't a lot of them around and I imagine Preeti, this might sound familiar uh, with your family, but you know, when you don't have a cohort of Indians, it forces you to get to know your neighbors you know, like we, we, I remember living in Long Island and like we had cooking club with the neighbors and they, I mean, it doesn't get more cliche than this, but they taught us how to make an apple pie. I mean, there was literally that type of interaction that um, is really like, you kind of think about it today and you just hope, like, I hope against hope that that type of interaction happens, but I'm, a little skeptical because I think that we're all kind of more in our tribes and our assumptions. And there's just, you know, from the Indian community, there's just more of us from the Assamese community. There's more of us. We're connected in a way so that when you land in a place, there's probably 16 Google groups to introduce you to each other. And so you bypass your neighbors who might make apple pie with you. Right. You know, in uh, one of your books, um, Suburban Sahibs, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I read that you describe it as um, America has become a nation of suburbs as well as a nation of immigrants. And the book offers a window into that world. What do you mean by that, that America is now uh, a nation of immigrants as well as a nation of suburbs? Because right now the concept of immigration to America has very much come under attack. So can you just speak to to what you mean by that? That's what a timely question. So if you kind of look at um, the narrative of the 2016 election and the notion of a white working class, in 2020, I would argue that that was replaced by the suburbs. And so for President Trump, using um, the suburbs became kind of a shorthand for, you know, the quintessential American life, the, the picket fence, the apple pies, that you know, and all of that. And it sort of represents um, a white America, when in reality, the suburbs have, have have rapidly diversified. And for many immigrants, whereas like for my parents, their first stop was New York City, you know, an enclave in Jackson Heights, and then later one in Brooklyn. Um, for many immigrants, because of, you know, Google groups and email addresses of family and so forth, they might arrive in Edison, New Jersey, right? They might arrive in Palo Alto. And so even the the idea of the suburb we're kind of being spoon-fed right now is absolutely wrong. And then for African-Americans, because of housing prices in cities and how we did see uh, kind of, uh, if you look at New York City and kind of see what's happened, um, I call it the Applebee's effect, right? Where like everything is like big box and kind of brand names and so even cities have become, you know, she-she and um, anonymous in some ways, right? They're not the gritty places that uh, well, although some parts of them are. And so even um, African-Americans, 60% of them live in the suburbs. And so I think that 
you got to drill into the data when we use these words that are actually wrong. And my first book before all of this became more political was just trying to look at, you know, what is the American dream being defined by the suburbs? You know, good schools, picket fence, home ownership. Um, how has that changed what it means for an immigrant to become American? And how have the suburbs had to embrace immigrants as they redefine what is a very white, iconic image? Um, and then I didn't know that that would take off in 2020 as a political um, assertion as well, but, but my did it ever. Well, it really does, to me, reflect that the work of journalists in many ways is, it's, and I'm sure this isn't the first time and the first moment where it's happened, but you all are like anthropologists, like working in real time and creating records that are going to document uh, what is unfolding and so much is coming at us. Uh, I did come by a wonderful quote by uh, Brian McKenna, who said, we need a wave of writers and journalists unafraid to do the most radical thing imaginable. Simply describe reality. Have you found that it has become harder to do your job in the last how that five years, ten mm-hmm. years, just as a journalist, just to tell the story? Yeah, absolutely. So I rely on details in my work uh, that are that are factual, but also hopefully resonant. And so I think a lot about how does journalism land in a way that doesn't feel like everybody else. And in a way that feels concrete. And so, you know, you're, you're talking about the reaction to immigration. So in Edison, New Jersey, when immigrants would show up, there was a rule in the town that your car had to be parked um, under six inches from the curb. And so as these enclaves started to become like mom and pop stores taking over for Indian groceries or Indian restaurants, there would be an influx of people from out of town to do their weekend shopping, right? To, to sort of set up for the week. And um, there would be largely kind of white American reaction to that of going out and measuring how far your car was parked from the curb, right? And so I think about that in the idea of detail and fact, and yet also clearly point of view, Right. Um, and I share that because what I worry in our efforts to fact check the president over the last five years, journalism almost became clinical as opposed to personal and emotional, right? So it became, he said this, no, this is not true. And two things were lost. One, we know that the nature of social media, the initial claim outperforms the truth slash fact check, right? And so our desire mm, to wow. fix the record often would feel too late and too little because the audience had already moved on to the next tweet or the next thing. The other piece that I've struggled with, especially over the last five years, is um, the nature of the president being combative with media, which inadvertently sets us up for the other side proverbial other side. And mm-hmm. I always told my teams, we are not the other side, right? We show up to work every day as journalists, not to retort to the president, not to respond, not to be adversarial. We show up for the public. We represent communities. We represent people who could not be in press conferences. We represent people who are not on Twitter. And so what's been so difficult about my framing around that is that Correcting the record to get to D, as you're describing the place of fact, actually, in the eyes of the public, becomes adversarial. And so Mm -hmm. you just don't win, right? And so I'm just in a place where I'm trying to figure out, is fact-checking the answer, or is it actually getting to a place of connectivity with your reader so that they trust you and there's something memorable and concrete as opposed to, he said this, which you all remember, I'm going to tell you the truth, which is in language that's journalistic, distance, factual, or like data and percentage driven that yes, while it's true, might not be memorable. 
Do you remember the guy measuring six inches from your car? I think you do, right? And so I, I'm really struggling and I'm very kind of publicly struggling with this to creative journalism that allows you to, yes, cling to fact, but also um, understand that your facts and my facts are filled with, with a point of view, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to at least get to a baseline where can we agree on a can we agree on a set of facts and from there we move forward and that's again like very publicly i'm i'm struggling with what that what that might look like it's interesting because you know when you talk about fact checking and that initial response i think if you were to poll many people um, in terms of how they receive information or how they receive news you know there's so many places to go there's so many different outlets to get information that they would actually probably, and you may disagree, come back with, um, you know, I go here or I go there because I feel a connection to, to this establishment or this individual that's presenting information to me. So one thing is, you know, the, the very first thing that's said is usually I feel as though taken as fact, you know, whether to your point, you fact check later or not, there's that initial, there's that initial, okay, this is the first thing I heard, I've moved on. So you know, I'm not going to worry about that stuff, but it, do you you think that there's a way to, and perhaps this is what you're struggling with there, you know, the authenticity of who you are, the authenticity of how you're creating, you know, you're, you're, you've launched, you know, epicenter New York city recently, how you're creating, you know, a space for, for authentic, um, storytelling, authentic delivery of information, um, do you think that's based on a formula or is it really about the person presenting that voice? Because I'm curious. And my second question is when you would tell your teams, that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to fact check. We're not here to antagonize. We're here for the community, for the public. What was their response to that? So I, I actually think um, journalists are filled with purpose and they they get that. And so um and so, yes, we, we might end up in a place of fact checking and rightfully so. Right. I don't want to dismiss the um, audience reaction to fact checking, because what we would end up doing is pushing for that framing to be memorable so that it might perform. Right. So that it's not combative. And so that do you see yourself? So, for example, you know, do you say stimulus bill in a headline or do you somehow get to the individual small business owner with language that might be connective, right? So this, this gets to the point of um, the newsletter and this notion of journalism that connects to communities. Um, and so we launched um, really organically, really out of necessity. I live in Jackson Heights, Queens, which has been one of the hardest hit communities by COVID-19, not just in New York city, not just in New York state, not just in the country, but in the world, right? We, um, for March and April, the sound of sirens, uh, of, you know, tr- patients being transported to Elmhurst Hospital is something that will haunt, um, you know, us for, I think, the rest of our lives. Like, that is just, um, it, it's such a, it just, the, the fabric of that community, um, really, really was kind of uh, fraying under, you know, the same factors that make me love my neighborhood density. I can run my errands in five seconds. Uh, you have the whole world there are the same factors that allow COVID to thrive, right? Um, people live in very dense housing. There are people coming and going from their home countries or from other parts of the country. And, and, so, um, and so we launched Epicenter as a necessity, right? Because what was happening was that, as often happens in, um, in communities where you've made it, right? When you become the senior vice president at CNN, what happens? Your community starts to say, well, you know how to fill out PPP forms. Could you help us with this? Or my friend's on a ventilator at Elmhurst Hospital and we need someone to advocate for him. Or my friend can't get a hospital bed. Can you? And so can you, can you, can you? And so my husband and I started getting these emails and we would hit forward. We would hit them like, you know, send them to 50 of our neighbors and we would donate. We would you know, say, oh, this, this, these people need masks, these people need diapers, these people need food. And 
after a few weeks of this, we looked at each other and we said, we're going to go broke and we're turning to the same people over and over and over again. And so how could I be a good neighbor without using the skills of being, I hope, a good journalist? And how could I be a good journalist without relying on what I know as a neighbor and a resident of Jackson Heights? And so we launched a newsletter. That's how Epicenter was born. And you learn so much when you're setting up a product like this that Mm -hmm. it's so intentional, to use your word creepy, of being intentional um, about helping a community. Because the other models of how people run newsletters start not to apply to you, right? Because you're like, I don't really want to summarize what the New York Times said this morning. I don't want you to go start your day with the news agenda. Like, I'm actually trying to get you to donate diapers so I don't have to be the one, you know. And so we said, how do you do this? And so every item we basically distilled into this must be something that helps a New Yorker connect. This must be something that helps you act, right? Mm-hmm. And and so that kind of helped, um, again, the framework of what could journalism look like? And again, it, it's not revolutionary and yet it kind of feels revolutionary because it's not the who what when where why it's actually no you dear reader have a role to play here Mm -hmm. right our goal is actually to try to get you to do something now it's not all about donating diapers it might be let us help you get yeast because we know that's really hard to find right Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. it might be um, you know, we know you really miss Christmas carols. So here are like six places that you can watch them. Right. So it, it, it's still, a, it's still with an eye towards bringing people joy. And I think this is another piece of black and brown communities that so much of the narrative on us is charitable, right. Is, is hurting or is, and of course that's rightful, but also like for our newsletter, we were like, what is the joy? right? Where is the joy? And let's connect joy to, you know, people who are seeking that right now as well. I love everything that you just said. (laughs) I need this newsletter. We share a land space. I'm in Brooklyn. The way I will be in Jackson Heights, because this to me is the answer. Journalism is essential. And at the same time, what I am hearing, you are revolutionizing it because it's almost as if your response to, in many ways, uh, the onslaught that has come is to elevate above it by, by creating a tool of civic engagement. And community has always been how oppressed communities have survived. We have to come to, when I say community, I mean us just diverting our attention from the nonsense and just finding strength with amongst one another. And that is why I think there is such a profound power in the joy that communities that have been historically oppressed, um, when that joy can be found in such darkness, it has to be extra powerful because it's, it's like the diamond that gets created under the pressure yeah. You know, and it shines and it shines in a way that everybody can see and appreciate, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of whether you come out of that same, you know, coal mine or whatever. Right. But this is phenomenal. I'm so excited about this. And I just want to say that, you know, I, I wonder, um, there's so many things I did read that you created. This is not your first time creating a brand new yeah, uh, media outlet <laughs> and that you had the experience that a lot of children of immigrants don't have to actually go back and live in the homeland of your parents. Can you tell us oh, what, yeah. what had you make that decision? That that's a life shift. That's a big Bali moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I tried <laughs> to, happened? I tried D I forgot. I D these <laughs> always on branding. I am. Never, I never am, but yes. Tell us about that. He said that, because I came on the podcast, I get a free trip to Bali. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to, if that, if that's what it takes to continue the branding, I'm, I'm, I'm all with you. <laughs> okay. 
So going, it, so this idea of going back um, that you asked about, I was born in Brooklyn. So um, big ups to Brooklyn D. Um, I, when, when people said, oh, you're going back, I'd be like, no, nah, really, I'm not, I, I'm, I was born in Brooklyn, right? However, yeah. I have been, I have been obsessed with the question of why did my parents come to the country? And in some ways, my coverage of immigration, my first book, my, you know, my tendency to, to, uh, to really center, um, black and brown stories in my journalism, uh, and in the newsrooms that I've run, I think come out of the background and this kind of perplexing question of, why did my parents leave? And so um, in 2006, my daughter was two at the time. I was working at the Washington Post. And um, a friend of mine who uh, had worked at the Wall Street Journal, I saw an announcement saying he's moving to India to launch a business newspaper. And I just sent him a quick email saying, congrats, I'm so jealous. And my phone rang within like 30 seconds of uh, sending that email because he saw it and he was like, and he called me and he was like, like kind of almost like, um, it was a very exciting phone call because he was like, I don't know what this outlet's going to be called. I don't know what you would do. I don't have a salary for you, but do you want to come? And I was like, do I want to come? And I talked to my husband and I said, I think so. But then I talked to my husband who, um, had been wanting to set up an artist um, studio anyway. And at the time the art market in India was booming and our daughter was two. And so, you know, we're not dealing yet with school or kindergarten admissions or any of that crazy stuff that prevents you from making life decisions later. And so we got up and we um, moved to New Delhi and um, an interesting thing happened. I um, got closer to my family in new ways I didn't think were possible. I, I mean, I'm very close to my extended family, but just physically being present in the country allowed them to show up in my living room, right? In my space, taste my not so great cooking. But like, you know, that's a shift in the dynamic with relatives who we had only seen every summer, mm -hmm. very kind of foreign, very... Uh, very loving, but nonetheless, like almost um, nostalgic way, right? Yeah. Parents going back was always kind of for like 50 years now has been a recreation of what they left, the foods yeah. they loved, the people they were raised with. Their and so I got to, you know, had a swanky living room and we would go to parties in New Delhi and we had a driver. And like, so there was a part of that life that's so different. Yes. Um, and by the way, so different from the America I was living in. The other thing that happened is that my own assertion as an American became stronger. Mm -hmm. And I say this because I have taken it for granted my whole life. And by going overseas, it was kind of this, um, you know, you see new systems and you're like, well, that one's good, but God, these three right. other ways are very inefficient, right? Or like, the, and so there's a, and that comes with a little bit of um, almost ego or the arrogance of the typical American. And so then you're kind of in that state of, you know, I, I assume people like us are all obsessed with how can we shift power dynamics and how can we share wealth and how can we, and so there would be this like sense of myself in the middle of this judgmental mm -hmm. reaction to processes in India. And I'd be like, Oh my goodness. So there was just a, it was a fundamental time in my life to reassert who I am to articulate, you know, why I am the way I am and what I believe in. There were streaks of libertarianism that surfaced in me because I would be like, Oh my goodness, this, government is everywhere in my life and then I would and then you and then it would be completely swinging the next day to say wow isn't the system of healthcare amazing for these children who you know go to school and get uh, just like a real kind of notion of being taken care of in a socialist economy right and so my pendulum politically economically as an Indian as an American was like I'm hyper alert for the two plus years that we lived there. Um, and then when it did come time 
for kindergarten admissions for my daughter, we had to decide, do we want her to be a part of the Indian education system or the American education system? Do we feel comfortable with my parents living in the U.S. and we're living in India? And so mm-hmm. we, we ended up returning home. Um, but forever, cha- like since then, you know, there are years where I'll go to India once, twice, three times a year. Like I'm so connected to the country now because I, you know, I, I do, I can do some work there. I have very deep relationships beyond my family there. I mean, I really, um, it was kind of so needed, but also very defining in my life. You know, I, I can somewhat relate having spent a little bit of time in Bombay, certainly not as long as you did in New Delhi, but I think another, I I wish actually all of, uh, you know, children of immigrants, uh, you know, Indian growing up in the U S could spend some time in India because that bridge of connection to your ancestors, to your parents, to family that you didn't grow up with, right. Cousins, aunts, uncles, you know, visiting where your parents grew up, the, the, enormity of change they went through and the distinction between the two worlds is so grand that you do feel a sense of one you know the duality of being both american obviously and you know quite honestly truly we're from india as well because our ancestors are we're only first generation and i think i think it's an incredible it gives you so much perspective and and um and isn't it interesting too? Because I love it there. My parents are. Oh, my! I remember telling my dad, "I'm going to move to Bombay," and he's like, "You have to go stand in line for vegetables. Do you like yeah. understand what you have to do?" And you know, so interesting that they left this country that we find so incredibly, you know, um, seductive, if you will. At least yeah. I do. I think. I think. I think they maybe they had to. Like, I right? Think of course. Were, for, for us, we're so lucky in the ability to go back and forth, whereas for them, it was a cutting of ties, knowing that you probably could not go back. So sometimes I wonder if the disdain is not to psychoanalyze our parents, but to psychoanalyze our parents if it's a necessary tool of survival. Survival. Yeah, I agree. And also, you go- oh, no, please, please. Uh, you guys going is different from your parents returning because you guys are Americans mm-hmm. and Indian Americans. Yes. But something that I know that I experienced and that the first time I left the United States, I had my sense of myself turned on its head mm-hmm. because here, you know, especially when I'm in spaces where I am outnumbered, I am very much aware, and I'm so used to it, I don't really think about it, but I'm seen as my race, and then potentially as American and a woman and all that other stuff. But the racial identification, the racial assignment, I would say, is absolutely the prominent uh, identifier. However, when I leave the country, I am spotted as an American first, and that really changed so much of how I understood the power that to your point, I had taken for granted that just comes with, you know, being raised mm-hmm. in this place. Uh, I remember being, being in France somewhere and I uh, was waiting for a tour guide and this guy comes over and he said, you must be Didi. I was like, uh, how did you know? He's like, I could tell by the way you were walking, you're, you're American. And I'm like, what, but how, what do you mean how I'm walking? I just crossed the street. He's like, we can spot y'all from a mile off. It's like, what yeah. in the world? But it really is a privilege. It is a privilege. And the way, the things that we just assume uh, in terms of how things operate, it's, it's not necessarily the standard, but all of that. But I think that in the time that we're in now, where so many people have moved to remote living and remote working, not remote living, I take that back, but remote working, um, I know many of my friends who have connections to their ancestral homes and even those who are just curious about their ancestral mm-hmm. homes are leaving the country. They are leaving America to go and live in other places to experience what you've got to experience in very profound ways. So I think these shifts uh, and the benefits that come from, you know, trying something new, an entirely new world are very, very uh, empowering and, and life changing and, and really great. So hats off to you. 
Mitra, why is it, why was it so important that you tell these stories in, in your books? Um, so when I was 16, I did a, a minorities journalism workshop. That's what it was called. And um, I had been on the school newspaper. I joined the school newspaper when I was 12 and we moved from Puerto Rico to um, New Jersey for middle school. And then when I got to a different high school, I joined the paper again. And um, my advisor nominated me for um, this program. And at the time, you know, speaking of kind of Indians and South Asians not really knowing their place in the country, in America, I didn't even know we were minorities. Like, of mm. course, we're minorities, but like it wasn't a part of my identity. Um, and so I was like, well, will I qualify for this workshop? And so I applied. I got in. And it was me and about, uh, I think it was 16 other students from all over New Jersey and kind of equally divided between um, Asian Americans, Latinos, and Black Americans. And the first night in their effort to bond us, we had to watch Boys in the Hood. Uh, that oh, John- my gosh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> It was like, this was like the early nineties. Maybe. Yeah. This is the, uh, like, this was that period. Just so you're, you're placing me in my, I like use the curling iron and whatever. Um, <laughs> and there was a line. And so the next day, the director of the journalism workshop said, why did I make you guys watch boys in the hood? And a person raised their hand and they said for that moment when they said that, um, his murder wasn't even covered in the papers. Mm. And it has stayed with me my whole life, that line from John Singleton's Boys in the Hood. But also, what better way to bridge? Like, I just feel so fortunate in my life that there have been these things that shook me into awareness. Because Mm -hmm. what if, what if that didn't happen? And I was just like all those Indian people who are like full of themselves and thinking they're white and like living. Like, what if that was me? And it could have been me if I wasn't shaken in the 12 hours between that movie and that reaction the next morning in a classroom. And so I was shaken, but also I was brainwashed into a certain type of journalism that we had to do right mm-hmm. for the next two weeks and imagine a more impressionable time in your life than when you're 16 years old being told you have a voice, your story matters. Here's how you're going to do it. And in your head, you're also like, well, John Singleton got to do it and he is amazing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this possibility and nobody's telling it's like, I mean, these are the spaces I think we really need to create definitely for black youth and probably for brown youth, although with kind of more wake up people messaging than, um, than what black Americans already know. And so I just was exposed to not just a type of storytelling, but also a redemption of that story mattering and being necessary. And so my path in journalism in some ways, because of this program it was almost like your price of admission is for mm. you to speak up, right? And if you do not speak up, you are a failure as a journalist. And all these people that worked so hard to get someone like you who didn't even know she was a minority, what kind of person are you? You better spend your life making up for that. And so I think between that and then having a father who happened to have been very politicized at Benares, became a Buddhist, was president of the student union, um, fell in love with the work of James Baldwin and sort of gave me the minute that he saw I was engaged, just started throwing Malcolm X and James Baldwin and Richard Wright and just started throwing it at me in a way that thank God at this impressionable stage, it charted the course of the rest of my life and career. The two, I think you just define two of the most important pillars of youth, quite honestly, you know, the, the understanding that you have a voice 
and that voice has the right to contribute and having a parental figure that recognizes, you know, their child's mission and goals and feeds them with what they need necessary. And I think, yeah, I think that's extraordinary and, and, and very fortunate, very fortunate. Yeah. I mean, I, and I've talked to a lot of, um, you know, my work has kind of forced me to talk to a lot of other Indian journalists or Indian professionals and, um, just the absence of that is almost something I think we need to correct for, right? Sort of not having the true history of how we got into this country and who paved our path. And, and I just, you know, I'm really lucky that my dad is a voracious, is a voracious reader. And, um, I think because also you can't forget that like Indians in the fifties, um, they came out of a tradition, like, you know, I, and my daughters are kind of the same. So they, they organized my, my little one when she was six organized, um, a civil rights tour of Atlanta. And we were in Martin Luther King Jr.'s house. And then we were at the King Center. And there's a whole room on how India influenced Martin Luther King Jr. And um, I had known about it, but just seeing it in Atlanta on his terms and not through the Indian lens was also. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is a generation of Indians who know this, who feel this, but I think that in their desire to fit into this country, they kind of forgot a lot of it, right? Or completely mm-hmm. tried to fit into this country in, again, a different game of survival. Right. And I, you know, I just, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for all of that kind of um, throughout my childhood and, and teenage years being um, just accessible. I, I cannot resist bringing up the, what I hope, Kamala Harris's rise is going to help to to promote in terms of just showing that there has been a connection between Indian people from Indian cultures and, and people from African descended cultures, uh, and and that is not uh, it's not isolated. That beautiful things come out of our communities coming together. Clearly, first female you know vice president ever. And, and that there are so many commonalities that oftentimes our communities don't recognize, but that really are complementary. And Absolutely. it's a beautiful thing. And I hope more of this happens. And I'll just say, Preeti and I were friends before we even knew who she was. So you guys could do like a whole, you could do so much with Kamala Harris. That's good. That's a good Bali effect. Yeah, we're going to make it happen. I'm going to switch this to just a slightly lighter note, Mitra. Okay. I recently read an article you wrote about the, you know, much hyped Netflix show, Indian matchmaking. Mm. Okay. And in it, you say the show creators are not redeeming the cavalier manner in which families perpetuate inequality and outdated thinking. They're exposing it. The mirror's being held up and it's impossible to look away. Now, when you first watched it, right? So you had some time to reflect before you, you, you know, put this, this essay out when you, what was your reaction when you first saw the show is my first question. And then secondly, um, you're married, was your uh, marriage an arranged marriage? Oh God, no. Um, so, and I don't say God, no, cause I'm opposed to arranged marriage, but I'll say, Oh God, no. Cause I could not picture my husband agreeing to that. <laughs> I think at one point in his life he did. Um, so I watched the show with my daughters and my husband, which I think helped me appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband kind of rolled his eyes at a lot of it, as, as you might imagine. My girls, though, were like, wait, is this how it really happens? And I realized that because arranged marriage had been such a part of my understanding of what it is to be Indian because my parents had an arranged marriage. Most of their friends had had arranged marriages. My cousins were having arranged marriages that my girls who, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say have been surrounded by such a um, loving, functional, progressive union. I feel like you guys need to quote that and send that to my mother-in-law. Um, we'll, we'll highlight this. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah. Um, I think that they were just like thrown by weight. This is how it might happen. And I was like, you guys, like it's worse than this. Sometimes you don't even get to converse in a room by yourselves. Right. Like sometimes. And so I think that 
for me was partly the helpful lens through which I ended up celebrating it because my girls were so taken and they're Indian. So for them to be awakened to something that was an Indian tradition, I thought, well, that's well done, right? Mm -hmm. Well done. Because what other cliches are there? Like when it comes to being Indian, it's like snake charmers, arranged marriage, and like maybe chicken tikka masala, right? Like those are kind and yoga, right? Like there's just these like stereotypes of our community. And I was like, oh, great. Another show about this. And yet it was revelatory. Mm-hmm. The other reaction I had was um, one of, and I don't know, Preeti, if you had this reaction, but this is so not our parents, India, right? Oh, um, yes. um, the, the kind of liberalization that's occurred in India, the so-called modernization, and yet the juxtaposition of that absolute privilege, wealth, and um, desire to join, you know, the global citizen. Mm-hmm with this ancient tradition and how it just like kind of keeps butting heads. Um, That was my takeaway. And in some ways, what you just read out loud, I think was that reaction of, yeah, you know, the best, the best stories are in the collisions of those things. Right. And, and that, um, and that's what, what I tried to get at. My husband and I met at a, um, open bar, a 30th birthday party I threw for my brother. Uh, my brother and my husband were in an arts group together. It was not an arranged marriage. We were both dating other people at the time. Um, I was dating someone very sensible who I, uh, I shouldn't say probably should have married because in case uh, you send any of this to my mother-in-law, that's, that's not who I should have married. I should have married her son. It worked out, but um, we were dating other people. And then uh, we were fr- we we were friends before we got together. Uh, probably the be- I mean the best way it should be. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can tell you that um I made my parents watch Indian matchmaking, and they're not doing a lot of you know content consumption these days. But they watched um that, and their only reaction, my mother's only reaction was, "Can I get in touch with Seema for you?" <laughs> and I was like, "That's what you took away from Seema?" Is no. <laughs> We're going to move on. I have to say that we could spend another five hours talking to you because you're extraordinary. As always, our time goes by very fast on these podcasts, but we, well, Didi actually started this rapid fire thing, which I think is great. So we're going to ask you a few questions and you just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready, Mitra? Yes. Okay. If I had to do one thing only every day, it would be? I mean, I should say exercise, but um, walk on the beach. A lot more fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. My parents are supportive. America today feels like a hot mess. I'd love to have a meal with. I'm torn between the Pope and Kamala Harris. I think. Yeah. My daughter should always uh, be confident. Although I say that tentatively, so what the hell was the point of that? Um, (laughs) Hold on, I'm thinking. Uh, feel beautiful everyone in the world needs to know that it's not about them I always love these I always do I do too D I'm so glad you introduced them because I mean they're always so powerful Mitra Kalita, we where can we find information on Epicenter where can folks find information on you what do you want them to know Tell us all. You can subscribe to Epicenter at epicenter-nyc.com. You can find out what I'm working on at mitrakalita.com. That's M-I-T-R-A-K-A-L-I-T-A.com. And I am scarily easy to find on the internet. Um, I'm active on Twitter at Mitra Kalita. Um, and I also have a page on Facebook. I highly recommend Mitra's Twitter feed. It is, I oh. mean, I was I was on it for an hour and a half yesterday, so. 
I definitely, I definitely recommend following Mitra on Twitter. Thank you so much for spending your morning with us, Mitra. Amazing. This is great. Oh my gosh. I'm signing up for Epicenter immediately. 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 All right. We'll catch everyone else. (laughs) We'll catch you all next time on the Bali Effect. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, follow us on Instagram, the underscore Bali underscore effect. And we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Check us out.